for stable funding in Oregon, uh, provide access to public education to all students across the state. And at the same time, I wanna make sure that our housing issues, our healthcare issues are being heard, but are being met at the same time, because we can talk about housing and healthcare forever, we have been, but nothing has changed. And I think it's, we're in a critical point that, that we gotta we gotta do that. Uh, and we, when, when we say we gotta do that, we, we mean business. We have to change that uh, sort of like a monopoly and the mindset of the politicians, you know? Uh, and so I think we can do that. Uh, I think uh, I, mean, I would like to go for a, a, a bigger or a more uh, uh, sustainable uh, funding for all uh, public uh, education uh, systems in, in Oregon. I think we can do it uh, four, four or six years from now, but we have to start talking about it now to build that momentum and build those partnerships. And I think we can do it. Well, thank you so much, Enrique, for joining us on KBU. Um, thanks to Jamie Partridge for helping us convert this to a radio-ready file. Thank you, audience, for tuning in tonight. Thank you, Stephen. This is Rachel Haynes. You've been listening to Labor Radio. Tune in next Monday and every Monday at 6 p.m. to catch another Labor Radio I'm Amy show. Goodman, host of Democracy Now! You're listening to KBU 90.7 FM. Baby, you understand me now If sometimes you see that I'm mad Don't you know no one alive can always be an angel When everything goes wrong you see some bad But I'm just a soul whose intentions are Um, good evening. You're listening to Prison Pipeline here on KBOO Community Radio. Tonight we are talking with Tanoa Downing. Uh, Tanoa, welcome to Prison Pipeline. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Um, so tonight, Tanoa, we're going to be talking about some issues that are of concern to you that you'd like to share with um, the broader community. Can you start out by first telling us a little bit about yourself and what you're concerned about? Absolutely, yeah. So five years ago, I was, I was on the other side. And, uh, um, you know, there, there seems to be two different realities within society right now. And, and the first part is, are those that choose to believe in something isn't real. And uh, I was one of them. You know, we have American principles that we, are, I think, are worthy of believing in and, and, and we want to believe in. But there seems to be a gap between uh, what's practical and what's actually being applied. And so there's this other group of people that have a different reality. And that reality is that America is not a just nation. We are not uh, one that, that, that allows for innocence to never suffer. And so um, when I came to understand that, uh, I realized that I was on the wrong side. I had been, and so I have some active litigation that, that, we've, um, that we put together. We did it out of Washington State. And uh, it's gonna affect, ultimately it's gonna affect how justice is, is administered uh, going forward um, once, it, once it reaches the Supreme Court. We're sitting with the initial litigation right now. It's, it's right below the Supreme Court. It's at the Ninth Circuit, where they're kind of in a purgatory status because uh, of, a, of a jurisdictional error that was made by the district court. And uh, as soon as the time is right, we'll go ahead and push it in the Supreme Court and get this finished and wrapped up. Uh, I now work for a company called Society First out in uh, Florida, and we're leading the uh, the uh, 
uh, the work on life without parole and getting that uh, reversed. So great. So um, let's let's go ahead and get into that lawsuit. Then, how, how wh what were the origins of the lawsuit, and um, yep. what is yep. the lawsuit about? So in 1833, the Supreme Court of the United States came out and they made a decision that the Bill of Rights, which were the first 10 amendments of the United States Constitution, that the Bill of Rights do not provide a restriction against state government, only against the federal government, okay? Now, there's a reason why they did that, and we have to understand that the Supreme Court is not exactly what we think that it is, okay? They made a decision because right around 1833 was when the first uh, bank system, the national bank system, was coming into play. And so they knew that the states uh, the states were going to challenge it. The states didn't want those. They didn't want the national bank to come into place. And so what they needed to do is they needed to make it so the states did not have standing in federal court. Now, to have standing, you generally have to have two things. One, you have to be directly impacted by the law in question. And two, you have to be a person, or in this case, an, an entity of the state with the power of the state. So they they obviously couldn't eliminate the state being a state. So then they had to figure out a way that, that, that it was not impacted by law. So the best way to do it is by saying the Constitution doesn't apply to you. And so they made this ruling in Barry versus Baltimore that said that the Bill of Rights doesn't apply to states. And by saying that, guess what? The states do not have standing in federal court to be able to sue once the, once the national bank is put into place. And so Chief Justice Marshall paved the way for that that first national bank to be put into place with a number of, of rulings, one of which was Barron versus Baltimore. And it is a fundamentally flawed and incorrect uh, ruling. So we also know that in Article 6, it says the judges in every state shall be bound thereby anything in the Constitution or laws of any states contrary notwithstanding. So the question then would be, is the Bill of Rights part of the Constitution? That was question number one. And the answer to that is absolutely. When it was ratified on December 15th, 1791 uh, by the people in, in the states, uh, it became part of the Constitution in accordance with Article 5. So it is, in fact, part of the Constitution. So then the question is, do judges have the right to disregard any part of the Constitution? And just as I said in Article 6, no, the judges are bound thereby anything in the Constitution or laws of any state contrary notwithstanding. And so everything is pointing to the fact that that they that they were bound to to follow the um, the Constitution and particularly the Bill of Rights. So it wasn't until 1925 then that that the first right within the Bill of Rights and that was the freedom of speech actually became uh, protected against interference by the states. So if you can imagine, from 1776 when we declare that all men are free and have all these rights until 1925, no one had the freedom of speech, no one. And uh, and that's 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 mind-boggling, but it's true. So. The case Barron versus Baltimore, as of today, is still standing Supreme Court precedent. In the state of Washington, they choose to not have an indictment by a grand jury. And so uh, Clause 1 of Amendment 5, which is certainly part of the Bill of Rights, it says, no person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on the presentment or indictment of a grand jury. So that's the grand jury clause, and it clearly states that you must have an indictment by a grand jury before holding someone over for a trial uh, in any infamous or, or capital crime. And so in the state of Washington, Article 1, Section 26 of Washington State's Constitution, what it says is it says no grand jury shall be drawn or summoned in any county. Now, that, that operates on its face unconstitutionally because it does not uh, permit the, the, uh, the um, gathering and, and convening of a grand jury. Now, the second part is because there actually is a second, um, a second part to that provision, but what it says, except the superior judge thereof shall order. So what it's saying is that you can't have it but it's in limited circumstances because the law uh state versus brady which are not brady but a state versus dunn which was put into place in order to allow for the prosecutors to make a decision as to what charging instrument is to be used um it actually places that that burden onto the on the prosecutor and the and the and, and them so which is correct so there are three ways to charge an individual with a crime all right there's first information 
but according to Title 18, uh, Section 455, or sorry, 555, what it says is that is that information is used for non-infamous crimes. So anything other than a crime that would send you to prison. The other two are a presentment or an indictment. Both of those are to a grand jury. A presentment would be uh, an information gathering opportunity where the grand jury will actually explore and investigate this this um, this act of corruption or act of uh, crime. And then a, an indictment was where you actually hand them the document. You say, this is the crime that I want to pursue, and this is what I believe was committed, and you allow them to uh, to find the um, uh, the bill, find the, uh, the crime. Um, now, we need to understand that the purpose of the grand jury is, is very, very specific, and it's very important because the grand jury is single-handedly the greatest protection against arbitrary and malicious uh, arrest or capricious arrest. So without the grand jury, you have arbitrary arrest. And, and, and so what happens is, is that when you charge with information, that information becomes an affidavit. It becomes, it becomes truth because it's never been it's never been confronted and so the moment that you're charged the crime you become presumed guilty based upon that mere fact that you've been charged the crime and and then and then that affidavit becomes truth and you can't counter truth and so you wind up in a situation that's called an irrebutable presumption of guilt and so an irrebutable presumption of guilt is of course when you are charged with a crime and that you're assumed guilty based upon that that, that charge and so then what happens has to happen is the burden of proof shifts from the prosecution on the defense to actually go out collect evidence to prove your innocence and and that's absolutely unconstitutional in fact it's a violation of human rights standards um you know it's it's, it's international law and you can never place the burden of responsibility onto the on the onto the defendant to prove that he's innocent it's you know we have a system that's supposed to be innocent until proven guilty but you're not innocent until proven guilty if you are uh, if you're not being given the opportunity afforded the opportunity to be able to confront the accusations that are against you and so this grand jury issue is a much bigger issue than simply Washington state. There's actually nine states in the nation that don't have a grand jury at all. It's the same as Washington. They just outright say, we're not going to do it. Um, the other states, including the federal government, the entire federal government, what they do is in 98% of those cases, they don't permit the accused to be able to be present in the grand jury. And that's where we have a failure of the system because there's no difference in, 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 not having one and not allowing the accused to be present it, it makes no difference and um there's a number of issues with that and let me just go ahead and sort out the two of them initially so anytime you have a right that right is supposed to apply to every person equally right there's no there's no discretion when it comes to civil rights and so if you have a right um that you're granted then that would mean that i would automatically have to grant that, that be granted that right as well that's because locke and rousseau who were the fathers of our of our modern um, philosophy of government they said that we gain civil rights as a result of choosing to defend the rights of others and so if you don't give the right to someone else then you yourself don't have that right it, we, we don't have them so a civil right is a, a right that we choose to give to everyone because it's it's in the, the better interest of all we want to preserve it for for all therefore we must grant it to all so what happens when you say that the prosecutor has the opportunity to decide who gets an indictment by a grand jury and who doesn't, now you have an equal protection issue. You have the application of the law that's being applied incorrectly because this judge or this prosecutor is being given the opportunity to decide who gets this protection and who does not get this protection. And that would be a violation of the 14th Amendment's equal protection clause. So you can't have uh, an individual that will choose to grant a right to one person, not to another. Um, so that's issue number one. Issue number two is there's a case called Hurtado versus California, which is the one that, that originally uh, was stated by the Supreme Court that, that, that denied the indictment by grand jury, and it was in 1887. And uh, in 1887, the Supreme Court came out and they said, that Cal state of California, that they have a different pr process that they go through, 
And what they do is they, um, and it went through it. I mean, the Hurtado case actually describes the exact process that they go through in order to reach this point of information. And what they say is they say that, that the accusation is presented to a judge who is in the presence of the accused and the accused gets the opportunity to have uh, um, representation with him as well as also call witnesses and cross-examine witnesses. So if you're gonna be treated as though you're innocent until proven guilty, you must start with innocence, right? That judge or that prosecutor needs to look at me just as innocently as, as he does the, the, uh, the accuser. Um, because without, without that objectivity, and, and you just assume that, that, you've, that you know the story based upon one half of it without collecting the other half, well, we don't know if there's lies in there. We don't know if, if, if truth is being ascertained because truth will always lie somewhere between two stories. And, uh, and so we cannot suppress one side of those stories from, from being told or worse, just outright ignoring them. Um, we've got to allow both sides to speak freely, fully, and truthfully per the law because absent that, we don't have justice because justice would never side with one party or another. Justice will always permit both sides to speak. And um, so I've, I've become quite passionate about this because because this is affecting a lot of people, a lot of people. And so when the criminal procedure manual, the United States criminal procedure manual, which was written by a Ninth Circuit judge, Court of Appeals judge um, out of California, in the preface to that, I believe paragraph number two, it says most prosecutors across the United States agree that as much as 15% of people in prison are innocent, but that's in self-deviance because our system isn't perfect. So we're just gonna accept the fact that it's okay to lock people up and that that's just a part of life. And I'm not okay with that. This would be a good point of transition to Tanawa, um, the, the tail end of what you were just talking about to um, also kind of mention your work around advocacy for elimination of life without parole. Could you talk about that yeah. a little bit? Yeah, so, so injustice has this profound effect on people. And it, it will oftentimes cause them to take action that would be unimaginable in any other context. But we do that because we've seen something and we've seen the suffering that goes on around us. And, and that's not something you can ever unsee. And so, you know, I know that God brought me in. He was calling me back, but he was calling me back because I have the expertise to be able to, to deal with these issues because because uh, I, I, I know it. I've been through it. I, I, I understand why the government does what they do. And I also understand now the people and, and, and what they're going through. And I'm in a position where I can bridge this gap between the two and actually communicate on both sides because I understand both sides. And, you know, that's the incredible thing about experience is that, you know, we want to talk about a blessing being beauty or a blessing being money or a blessing being, you know, easy life. And that's not a blessing at all because you don't learn to, to develop power and strength and courage in the peace and tranquility of life. You learn it within the, the, uh, the adversity that you experience. And so the greater the adversity, actually, the greater the blessing that you have, because from that, you're going to, to produce wisdom. And so that was, that, that, was, that was my focus on this, was that when I went in, I knew that there was something wrong and I needed to, to do something about it. And uh, I'm not trying to destroy the system. I'm just trying to get the system to understand that you cannot commit extortion in order to get someone to admit to a theft. One, one, one violation of law does not, uh, does not permit the other violation. If the arrest is unconstitutional because it derives from an unconstitutional act, you fail to follow the procedures, then that renders all of the fruit deriving from that unconstitutional arrest uh, unconstitutional as well because it's tainted by the illegality of the way in which it was obtained. So we've got to follow the proper procedures and steps in pro that are in place because that is there to protect the innocents. So there's basically two types of, of doctrine, legal doctrine, because law follows a structure, right? 
And the one is what we're supposed to have. It's called a government of laws doctrine, which is constitutionally based. And it's built upon the theory that in order for laws to be legitimate, they must be considered just and equal. But in order for all laws, all men to be equal, government laws must first treat them equally. So that's the way that our system is designed to work, based upon a fixed set of laws and principles in which the courts and people adhere to and which every United States citizen is accustomed to. Now, the opposite of the government of laws doctrine is what's called the legal realism doctrine. And that's very much alive and at work here in America, and it's destroying our system of government and infringing on the rights of people. Legal realism is the belief that law is not based upon a formal set of rules and principles, but instead upon judicial decisions, driving from their own social, political, or public policy. That is not constitutionally based, and it does not permit the fair and equal treatment of people. So when you look at what happens, if I were to file a, a claim, a constitutional violation to the, to the federal court, and I would say I was deprived of this right, Clause 1, Amendment 5, and I would cite all the constitutional rights that, that, that I have or the provisions that directly apply to that, the response that I get back from the court, as well as the state, is nothing but case law. That's it. They don't. They don't. They don't cite the Constitution one single time. I took this case all the way from the Ninth Circuit. I, I had four thousand people petition with me here in the state of Washington. We took it all the way to Supreme Court. We were. We, we were. We were there, and not one time did that court or or the state ever cite statute or cite um, uh, constitutional law. Not one time. I, that's all that I cited. I didn't cite the case law one single time because the problem is, is that when you allow for the judges to be the basis of, of your determination, well, you're allowing the flawed decision of the flawed man that came before you to be to be the decision maker or the flawed decision of the flawed man that came before him. Judges are supposed to have their oath with and to the Constitution directly. They're supposed to follow the Constitution per their oath that they took, and that's a statutory obligation. It creates a creates a, a, a law for them. And when they swear uh, to, to do it, then they're then they're their oath or their allegiance is directly with the Constitution. So when they choose to go and follow this this judge-made ruling before, then they're showing that they're not actually uh, um, siding with the Constitution. They're actually siding with the opposite and, and going the wrong way. So if there's a flawed decision, such as Barron versus Baltimore at the foundation, then that allows for continued um, flawed found, flawed construction as we as we continue to push forward. We've got to go back to the beginning. We've got to rip it out. And we've got to move forward, knowing that that we actually have the correct foundation, which is the Constitution of the United States. Now, to go to, to what I'm doing over here in Florida, so the state of Florida, Florida has more uh, life without parole than 30 other states combined, plus 1,000. They have an inordinate, an unbelievable amount of people that have life without parole. And, you know, yes, these are some of the, some of the worst people with, with some of the worst violations, but we have to remember what these people are fundamentally. We all make mistakes, and we all, we, we all need to move forward, but we have a culture here in America where we've become addicted to justice. And we think that we think that justice is necessary. And we can't imagine a world without justice, without prisons and all the rest of this. But we have to understand that this prison industry, it, it, it started right around the birth of our country. It's not a, a historical um, uh, industry. It, it started in the late 1700s, you know. And here in America, it was started based upon the Fugitive Slave Act. And we have to we have to go back to the beginning. We have to look at what, what the origins of this issue actually was, you know. We have the Constitution of the United States that declares that all men are guaranteed life, liberty, and the ability to find happiness, right? So they're guaranteed certain freedoms, including the ability to be free. But then in the very same document that guarantees your freedom, it permits the the uh, the depreciation of, of, that, of that freedom, and that creates a conflict within our law. And that's the irony that I find in the Constitution every single day is that is that – you can't guarantee freedom, but then at the same time permit for its 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 um, de degradation. And so, the reason why we had 
some of the things written into place, particularly uh, Article 4, when it talks about, you know, the fleeing of, of one fugitive to another uh, location, that was the slave. That's what it was, it was referring to. And we need to understand that, a Fugitive Slave Act. You know, so we have a justice system that's not based upon justice because justice would be fair and equal treatment of people, but rather we have a, a system that's based upon the enslavement of people. It's a criminal enslavement system. And so when you look at the 13th Amendment, and this is very, very important to understand, it, it's kind of a correlation between it, is that all through history, in American history, this system has been used to enslave people. And so the very law that was that was written to outlaw and abolish slavery, the one that we that we all buy off every single day and we believe, oh, slavery doesn't exist in America, well, we're fundamentally, fundamentally incorrect. We are the only industrialized nation in the world that not only permits it, but we've codified its legality within our foundational document. The 13th Amendment doesn't say you can't have slavery. What it says is it says neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist except as a punishment for crime. Well, you, when you say accept, that means you can't have slavery, but we have to call it justice from now on, and we're going to change it from a private institution to a public institution. So we've just kind of you know, hidden it in, in a different way um, and called it something different, something that uh, the society in America will buy off on, and then through non-disclosure and mis misinformation, we're continuing to hold these people in a state of, 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 of indentured servitude, and these states have recognized that. That's why they're making tens of billions of dollars every single year on the forced involuntary servitude of these individuals that they place into the system and forced to you know, make license plates and t-shirts for 30 cents an hour, and yet we call China and South Korea uncivilized because they do the same thing, only they call it a sweatshop. You know, um, that's not it's not it's not a, um, it's not justice. This is this is slavery and our laws actually permit that. And so um, so what's happening with the life without parole is here in the state of Florida, the Constitution of Florida, Florida state's constitution, it says that you cannot have life without parole. You're not allowed to do it because, you know, they recognize the fact that, that if you give someone life without parole, you've given them no reason to, to, to strive to do better. You've given them, them no hope. And so, you know, they wrote in directly, directly into it the inability to, to, um, to place someone into enslavement status for the rest of their life. And that originates from, you know, the, the Fugitive Slave Acts or the, the convict wars and leasing and stuff that we had in the, in the early, um, late 1800s and early 1900s. And so that was Florida's response to it was you cannot place someone into an involuntary servitude for life. Well, unfortunately, they do it every single day here in the state of, uh, of Florida. And so we've been trying to bring this into federal court to, to get the federal court to listen to this and to deal with this. But unfortunately, life without parole is not written into the Constitution of the United States. So what the federal government says is they say, oh, this isn't our issue. This is a state issue. Go argue with the state. And then when you go back to state, the state's a slave owner, and of course the state's not going to act. They're not going to listen to it. They're not even going to respond to it. And so we don't have any sort of any sort of pressure to to get standing in federal court to actually have them uh, listen to the case and hear the case so that we can, you know, resolve this matter. If the state of Florida writes into its own laws that you can't do this, and yet they do it, you know, forty thousand times over, we have a big problem, and it's and it's a failure to abide by our own rules. And so Chief Justice Day he said that he said that 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 nothing will destroy a nation quicker than failure to adhere to its own laws. And that's uh, across the whole country. That's what we're having today, is we're having a failure to recognize and enforce the supreme law of the land. And the people don't have faith in it because we've been told to believe in the judges and the words that the judges say. And we don't need to have faith in that. Our faith comes from the law that we put into place, the law that's, that's in all of our hearts. And so when we look at the, the substance or the spirit of law, the spirit of law is when you come together as people, you develop a, a relationship, and that relationship is establishment of laws. There's certain laws that, that will dictate you know, this relationship, and as we move forward, we will continue to put boundaries in place between each other to, to, to formulate and, and 
rest with that, that relationship. And that's all that laws are. So when we have a whole nation that comes together and we agree that we're going to establish a nation based upon the foundation of truth and justice, then when we when we're no longer when we no longer have truth within within the system, then obviously we have turmoil and we're going to experience that turmoil because it's contrary to those beliefs and those fundamental principles that we put into place and the spirit that, that resides among us. So when someone else is able to come in and impact the relationship, our our relationship as a nation moving forward, obviously we're going to expect and, and experience some some turmoil there. And we can't quite put our fingers on what it is, but I'm letting you know that this is the spirit of our of our nation. It's the spirit of us. And the spirit of us is saying that we are not uh, we're not abiding by our principles. Truth is no longer injustice, and we need to bring it back. Thank you. Um, so we've been talking tonight with Tanawa Downing. Oh, we just have a couple of minutes left in the show, Tanawa. Um, is there anything that you'd like to share in the last couple of minutes um, about your work, uh, ways that people can get in touch with you um, uh, so that they can you know, find out more about the, the good work that you're doing? <clears throat> Absolutely. So once again, I want everybody to know that you know, I'm not arguing for anyone's innocence. I'm not doing that. I don't know if these people are innocent or not. But what I do know is that guilt is a process, and you must follow that process. And if you don't follow that process, then I know that they're not guilty. So I'm not arguing for anyone, anyone's innocence, but I am arguing for their guilt. So, you know, we cannot declare someone guilty if we don't follow the rules, right? If we don't give them an opportunity to be able to defend themselves because we have a desire to proliferate this slave institution. And so, and so we need honestly, a rebirth of this nation. And we got to start over because when our forefathers who, who, who created our country, when they created an egalitarianism type of government where all men are equal, they made a fatal error that has been leading us to, to dissolution from the very beginning. We were destined for, for failure when they chose to not release their property, when they chose to keep their slaves. And in doing so, they created a system that can perpetually dis discriminate because they created a group of people that were at a lesser level. And in order to have an egalitarianism government, you must have all people start out equally moving forward because otherwise government has the ability to discriminate. So if we don't start over, if we don't bring everybody back to an equal status and we start our nation once again the way it should have been 234 years ago with each and every single one of us equal so that we're all perfectly unique but utterly equal, then we're going to be destined for, for destruction once again. And so you know, we can do this, but we have to recognize that, that – that, our own responsibility in in what's gotten these people in, into this situation, um, you know, a desire for for money and a desire to advance our own our own interests without considering the needs or interests of others is is really our problem. Um, you know, so I'm just as guilty as anyone. Prior to all this, I was one of the most selfish and horrible men that, that there could have been. But but it was in that suffering and it was spending time with those people who were suffering that I got to know them. And I'm going to tell you that. Although I may not share, you know, some of the some of the morals that, that they do, I didn't meet a single person in the four years that I was in prison. I didn't meet a single person I didn't like that I didn't believe was good. And for that reason, I can fight for these people because because we are inherently good. And so when we have as a nation 25% of the world's prison population, but only 5% of the world's human population, we have a big problem because our people are not bad. They're not evil. But the problem is, is that if those that are leading us if, if the leading the nation, if those people are criminals and they're violating the law and they're doing it with impunity, then they're going to lead our nation into criminality, and that's going to produce criminals as a result of it. We must ensure that those people that are, that are leading our country, that they're leading us into a place of non-criminality, that conformance to the law, that they lead us in the proper direction because they're abiding by the law and not leading us into a direction that, that's going to create criminals. We're all product of our, society, of our environment. 
so to get in touch with me and, and things that I'm doing, um, you can you can reach me through Society First website. Um, that's Society First here in Florida, Tampa, Florida. But you can also reach me by uh, by telephone. And anybody, you're you're welcome to call me. This is what I do. I work for God, and He pays my bills. But the number is six two six six nine three two zero zero five. I don't have a website quite yet. I'll be going on to Society First soon. Or you can uh, you can reach out to me by email, and that's uh, T A N A W A H at msn.com or you can find me on Facebook. I have lots and lots of this information out on Facebook. Um, I don't ask for any money. I don't need money. Um, I'm here to, to, to help the people and what God gives freely to me, I need to give freely to everyone else. And so um, I, I love what I'm doing now. I've never, I've never really loved myself until, until I had this opportunity to be able to actually stand up and, and defend other people. And um, so the first half of my life I spent taking all my talents and expertise and I applied it to myself to better myself. And I certainly, I certainly did that. I made a lot of money and lived a very comfortable life, but in the blink of an eye and a swipe of a pen, in two seconds, it was gone. And I just figured this second half, I'm going to take that expertise and we're going to apply it to other people and see if we can't create something that's going to last. And I'm very confident that we're about to create something that's going to be amazing and unbelievable for our country. And so what I ask everybody to do right now is this. We have got to stop looking at what people do and we've got to stop start looking at what has been done to them. Because when we look at what they do, all that we can see is a monster who needs to pay for the things they've done, right? This sets up the vengeance system we have today. We can't continue to look at what this person does. We need to start looking at what has been done to them long before the crime, right? As a mother, as a child, as a husband, father, we need to look at that point in time because something happened to this person that changed the trajectory of their life. And that's the point that we need to look at because when we look at that, now we find compassion and healing and a desire to want to make them better because we can understand why they've done the things that they did because of this, 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 this is happening. So whether it's a child who, who has absent parents, you know, that, that hurt is a lasting, lasting hurt that we need to help to address. We need to start repairing this familial unit and we need to start caring enough about these people to actually want to see them be healed because hurting people hurt people. And that is the basis of all crime being driven by our country. We need to take hurting people and we need to make them no longer hurt instead of taking them, putting them into a hurtful situation and then expecting them suddenly to be happy. It doesn't work that way. Point. Noah, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your uh, story and your good work. And um, uh, be best wishes to you and your continued in your continued work. Okay, thank you so much, and God bless everybody. Hope I didn't talk too long. So. Baby, you understand me now. If sometimes you see that I'm mad. Don't you know no one alive can always be an angel When everything goes wrong you see some bad But I'm just a soul whose intentions are good Oh Lord, please don't let me be Listening to KBOO Portland. Today is a special day because we have an easy reminder of the long and valuable history of these lands, and indeed of our entire continent. 
long before the slow and progressive colonization process, with all its myriad of terrible things that have become part of the history of our nation, our lands were inhabited by humble yet brilliant people who lived in perfect consonance with the world around them. Their legacy is evident in the well-known Native American philosophies and understandings of life and the world. It has never been easy anywhere in the world for people to assimilate to an overwhelming, seemingly undefeatable military force, and this has caused enormous pain and distress every 